Two years. Two years after the Israelites were led out of Egypt toward the Promised Land. For two years, they camped underneath the shadow of Mount Sinai. There they received two things. They received the law, and they received the tabernacle. God was instructing them how to live, and secondly, how to worship. After that two-year period, they were ready. Now they were a nation, this group of slaves who knew nothing but servitude were now established under God's leadership as a nation, and they marched toward their promised land. They camped at the southernmost point of what would become the promised land, Kadesh Barnea, and from that point, Moses sent out 12 spies. He wanted them to look at all of the land. He wanted to map the land, scout out the land, look at the people living in the land, and he wanted to bring them a sample of the produce of the land. It was declared to be a land of milk and honey, a land declared to be agriculturally very productive. Numbers 13 recounts the journey of the spies. And as they arrived back in camp, we read in verse 27 of Numbers 13, and they told Moses, the spies, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. And they showed what was revealed to us in verses 23 and 24. Look backwards a couple of verses. They came to the valley of Eskal. Eskal is a a valley uh, about 15 miles south-southwest of Jerusalem, they, the spies were on their way back home to Kadesh Barnea, where the rest of the camp was. They came to the valley of Eshkelon, and from there cut down a branch, a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkelon because of the cluster, that's what Eshkelon means, which the sons of Israel cut down from there. So great, so massive was that cluster of grapes that it took two men to carry it. They presented it to Moses. See, this is indeed a rich and productive land. Fast forward into the modern era. According to Guinness book of world records, the largest cluster of grapes on record was presented to uh, Guinness by a Spaniard named Sebastian Gomez Falcón. He grew his grapes in southern Spain, and on August 4th, 2018, he presented a single cluster of grapes weighing 22 and one-third pounds. That's a sizable 
number and weight of grapes. While we're on the record of a uh, uh, subject of record making when it comes to grape production, um, the, the largest grapes, or among the largest grapes, if they are not the largest, are also the most expensive grapes. I'm talking about a variety that is cultivated, grown only in Japan, uh, cultivated uh, since the 1990s, called Ruby Roman grapes. They are large. They are about the size of a plum. I'm also told that besides being large, they are elegantly sweet, fragrant, and dripping with juice. I'm also informed that they are not usually purchased for personal consumption, but as gifts. These highly controlled grapes have to go through a careful inspection process before they are market ready. These Ruby Roman grapes are categorized, they're graded into three categories. Superior, special superior, and premium. Superior Ruby Roman grapes sell for between 90 and $140 per cluster. Those graded special superior sell for between $180 and $450 per cluster. And those graded premium command a selling price starting at $1,000 for grapes. In 2019, an auction in Japan, one cluster of Ruby Romans, a total of 24 grapes on this cluster. The auction was for $11,000. 2020, it was bested. Similar size cluster sold for $12,000. It's all about the fruit. Premium grapes, premium fruit, premium value. In our study through the fourth gospel, we are in John 15. We've been here a couple weeks. We'll be here a couple more. We have begun this wonderful chapter with verse 1, where Jesus says of himself, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, we've spent a good bit of time talking about this image that Jesus builds and and what it means, the, the, the point here that Jesus drives home at the beginning of John 15 is that as the vine, the vine dresser, the father, is most interested in producing more fruit. 
And he does so by pruning, by removing, by cleaning up the branches. The key to fruit production we find in, um, in verse, uh, verse 4 where Jesus commands us, abide in me. As the, French, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And last week we looked at what, what I call the, the, the 3D view of the Christian life. What, what it means to abide in Christ. And here were the three Ds I gave you last week. Devotion, dependence, and discipline. They relate to my response to the Lord, my, uh, my abiding relationship with, with him in my mind and then in my heart and then with my will. I am devoted to Christ in my mind. That's what it means to, to abide in him. It means to, to set my mind on him. Paul said to the Colossians, set your mind on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind there. Last week I read from 1 Corinthians 7, where where Paul writes, I say this for your benefit to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. I also quoted from the next book that he wrote to the Corinthians. I am afraid that... Paul writes, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. To abide in him is to be single-mindedly devoted to him. Secondly, to abide in Christ means that I am dependent upon him in every way. I am trusting him in all things and in all circumstances. I read from Psalm 119 last week where uh, Ezra uh, uses a a number of verbs to describe this kind of dependent relationship on the Lord. Let me me read those verbs to you. You find them at the beginning of of, uh, the sentence, uh, the verse in uh, Psalm 119. Teach me, O Lord, he writes. Give me understanding. Make me walk. Incline my heart. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. Revive me in your ways. I am dependent on him in all things. Thirdly, I abide in Christ by disciplining my will, that is, my my conduct is to reflect whose I am. I've made reference to uh, Hebrews 12 now for the last two weeks where uh, the, uh, the, the author of that book writes, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I'm trained, disciplined. I go to God's gym in order to learn the habits so that my 
conduct and my character are in sync with the Lord. That's what it means to abide in Christ. That's premium fruit that will result. Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Now, all of that is is review of where we were last Lord's Day. This week, as we continue in John John 15, we are going to start this morning looking at verse 7 and move our way through verse 16. I'm going to read that in just a moment, but but I want to point out to you where we're going to be. If you have a copy of the notes, you will find seven points which is, uh, is unusually a large number for me uh, because um, I can't remember that many things. And you probably can't either. Um, but this, it's, it's, a, it's a big package. And the text as a whole describes for us the blessings of what it means to abide in Christ. If, if I do have this kind of connective relationship with him who is the vine, there are certain benefits, certain blessings, certain fruit, if I might use that word, that will result. Seven things that we'll find that will bless us as a result of abiding in Christ. Read, read the text with me, beginning at chapter 15, verse Seven. Jesus speaks. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the, fa- the master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. May the Lord open our eyes of understanding. Point number one, the blessings of abiding in Christ the blessing specifically of answered prayer. The blessing of answered prayer. 
verse 7 um, is a, a matter of fact, rather easily understood, or so we think, um, rather impersonal. Jesus says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, many people have taken this second half of that verse, uh, taken it out of its context, and uh, assumed that if they simply say the right words, matter of fact, if they say whatever they say in prayer, well, God is obligated. He's, he's um, committing himself to um, answer those prayers. Well, th- this, is, th- this is not an unqualified promise. Th- this is not a blank check when it comes to um, a prayer. There are other things that need to be Take it into consideration. Look at verse 16 in our text, for example. Jesus says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So so, so this idea of simply naming something and then claiming that to be your own is not true. Because there are other conditions that must be met. Here in verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me. Oh, okay. If there is a devotion in mind. If there is a, um, a dependence in heart. If there is a discipline of will. Where is all of that leading? Well, Uh, It is leading us, verse 16, to asking things in the name or consistent with the character, the person of Jesus. In James, half-brother of Jesus, pastor of the church in Jerusalem, in James chapter 4, verse 3, He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Oh, what are are the right motives? Well, it's conditioned upon abiding in Christ. And the right motives is, I am asking according to Jesus' name, according to his person in a a consistent relationship with what he is all about. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. uh, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will... He hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So verse 7 promises us answered prayer. 
That's one of the blessings of abiding in Christ. But there is that necessary condition of abiding in Him and the whole, the totality of that, of that meaning, the fullness of that meaning, uh, or, or of that phrase that means that I will be living according to His will, praying according to His will, asking in the name of Jesus according to His character and His will. We are in submission to Him. Agnes Sanford wrote, Prayer is not a matter of getting what we want the most. Prayer is a matter of giving ourselves to God, learning His laws so that He can do through us what He wants most. E.M. Bounds was a prolific writer on the topic of prayer, and he said this, the answer to prayer is the part of the prayer that glorifies God. That's what it means to pray in an abiding relationship with God. I am interested in His will, and I am submitting to His will, not my own. William Hendrickson told the story of a pastor who became seriously ill and had to be hospitalized. The congregation gathered together regularly, praying for his health, praying for his restoration, and the, fa- and, and the pastor died in the hospital. At the funeral, a, another pastor, uh, 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 who was the friend of the deceased, spoke, and he said, Perhaps some of you are in danger of arriving at the conclusion that our Heavenly Father does not hear prayer. He does indeed hear prayer. But in this case, two prayers may have been opposing each other. You were praying, Oh God, spare his life, for we need him so badly. The Spirit's groaning prayer was, Take him away from the congregation. They are leaning too heavily on him and not on thee. And the Father heard the Spirit's groaning and submitted to that prayer. Let me take back that last sentence. And the Father heard and responded to that prayer. Now that doesn't mean that we, um, we, we not pray and that really um, our, our praying does nothing. No, God purposes to use the means of our praying to accomplish his purposes. It's simply that when we say amen, we must realize and submit to the fact that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. 
His ways are higher than our ways. And we have to submit to that. And joyfully we do. Because we know that He will accomplish His perfect will Sometimes his answer to us is negative. Sometimes it is wait. Bottom line, end of the day, we pray as Jesus instructed us. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Point number two. Blessings of abiding in Christ. Second blessing is that of glorifying God. You'll notice in verse 2 of John 15 that the Father, the vine dresser, is interested in more fruit. Verse 5, he is interested in much fruit. Verse 8, Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit. Without doing damage to the text, we could insert another word into the first half of verse 8 to more accurately communicate what Jesus is telling us. And we know this from the tense of the verb. It's translated in the New American Standard text, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. That verb is in the present tense, meaning that you continue to bear much fruit. God is not interested in something that you put on your resume that you did some time ago. He's interested in you bearing premium fruit today and tomorrow and the rest of your days and in so doing I have the blessed privilege of knowing that God is greatly glorified now we've talked about what this fruit looks like a couple of weeks ago we we looked at scripture and we saw that uh, scripture talks about the the, um, the fruit of our lips, the fruit of good works, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of Christ-likeness. All of these things done in increasing measure glorifies the Lord. And that's what we're all about. The vine dresser is all about the fruit. Not too long ago, I read this quote to you from David Brainerd, missionary to uh, North American Indians, uh, more significantly from a human point of view. He was the son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards. And on his deathbed, Brainerd wrote this, My heaven is to please God and glorify him and give all to him, and to be wholly devoted to his glory. I do not go to heaven to be advanced, but to give honor to God, 
it is no matter where I shall be stationed in heaven, whether I have a high or low seat there, but to live and please and glorify God. Those who are abiding in Christ have the blessed privilege of seeing, of knowing, of realizing, of bearing the fruit of glorifying God. Second page of your notes. Number three. Let me read the full verse eight. I stopped in the middle for point number two. Point number three takes us to the end. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. And by the fruit of praise, by the fruit of good works, by the fruit of righteousness, by the fruit of Christ-likeness, I know, other people know, that I am abiding in Him who is the vine. The fruit is evidence of my abiding relationship. Let me give you another evidence. Look back at chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience to his commandments is another manifestation, evidence of my abiding relationship. Evidence of the fact that I am indeed born again, heaven-bound, a saint among sinners. Now, at this point, I have to give you two words of caution. And the first one comes from a footnote in the New American Standard text. If you have God's version, uh, that'd be New American Standard, right, Janet? It's exactly right. If you have that translation, you will notice there are, there are other translations. I'm not sure that the Lord would accept those, but uh, take your chances, take your chances. No, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. Um, if, if you have the New American Standard text, I want you to look at uh, another possible translation found at the end of verse 8. I'm, I'm looking for another translation of the verb prove. New American Standard reads, and by bearing fruit, by bearing much fruit, you prove to be Jesus' disciples. The, the New American Standard uh, footnote tells us that it might also be translated become. Now here's a good example of why we need to be careful looking at a context. Lexicographically, meaning, according to the dictionary, this particular Greek word used can be translated become. That's a legitimate translation of that particular word. And it's a very common Greek word that's used throughout the New Testament. Very common. But here... To translate it become would be at best misleading, at worst heretical. 
Let me show you what I mean. And here's my first caution. We have to be careful to translate the word prove or demonstrate or evidence. Because the fruit from my life, the fruit of praise, the, fr- the fruit of good works, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of, of Christ-likeness, does not make me a disciple. I don't become a disciple because I am bearing fruit. No. My fruit gives evidence of the fact, it demonstrates the reality of my relationship, my abiding relationship with the Lord. I have to look at this verb in this sense. I don't, by my good deeds, earn God's blessing, His favor, My good works come as a result of having received His kindness, His goodness, His mercy, His grace. So we have to be careful with with, with our understanding of where does this this fruit come from? How, How does it come about? Well, it comes about after I am in an abiding relationship with the Lord. And the fruit from my life gives evidence of the reality that I am indeed a born-again person. Here's my second word of caution. Don't expect. Don't expect premium $12,000 kind of fruit from your life every season. Let me break that down. Many more times than once. Many times, as a matter of fact. I have had conversations with people. Some are sitting in this room right now. Where they look at their life and they see the failures, they see the disappointments they have brought to the Lord. They, they see, they realize, they, they have a, a very vivid picture in their mind of how they have grieved the Holy Spirit of God. And there is great grief, there is great sorrow, and they wonder, am I, am I really saved? I look at what I have done, or, I, or I, I can't get these thoughts out of my mind. How can this be true of a person who is genuinely saved? Well, though the we have been given a new nature by the Holy Spirit of God, He's taken out that stone of, of, of uh, that, that heart of stone that doesn't beat, and He's replaced it with a heart of flesh that does respond to the Lord. Even though he has done that, we still have these, these, um, these old habits from our old nature that still hang around our neck. And we are still drawn in by the temptations of the evil one, of the world, of our flesh. We are still drawn into these things, and sometimes we stumble 
badly. When, when Jesus talks about proving that we are his disciples by our fruit, by much fruit, we, we, are, um, we are falling into the trap of the evil one to think that we are not saved because we are not every day, every season, bearing much fruit. Now, by definition, if you are abiding in the vine, you will bear fruit. But in some seasons, all you might have is a rather skimpy, sour raisin and not a cluster of premium ruby ruby Roman grapes. There will be something there but it may be pretty paltry. Be, be, be patient with yourself. Be in a state of repentance as the Holy Spirit reveals to you those things that are not in keeping with whose you are in Christ. And keep trusting. And He will continue to bear fruit. Point number four. Another blessing of abiding in Christ. It's the blessing of enjoying God's love. Enjoying God's love. Look with me at verse 9. Jesus says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide. Remain connected in my love. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. In these two verses, Jesus is is speaking of his relationship with the Father and our relationship with him. And he, he, he speaks of his own obedience to the commandments of the Father. And this is an outpouring, an overflow of his love relationship with the Father. Similarly, he calls us to obey his commandments, and, and that is the overflow, the, the result, the, the, uh, the evidence of, of our relationship with Christ. Jesus obeyed the Father's plan for redeeming mankind. And in that obedience, the Father was pleased. Matthew uh, chapter 3, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. To, to say that implies that he has uh, lived 
his 30 years at that point in sinless perfection. At the beginning of his ministry, um, the father says at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father was pleased by Christ's obedience. A couple of years later, well into Jesus' ministry, he is on, um, on the mount that we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And he has his inner three, Peter, James, and John, with him. And those three hear the voice of the Father verbally. And that voice says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Again, the Father says of the Son, I am well pleased with him. Question. Did Jesus earn the Father's love? That is, to say it another way, did Jesus obey the commandments of the Father and in so doing, did he win the affections of the Father? No. No, there was an inner Trinitarian love in the Godhead such that the the Father and the Son have eternally had that kind of loving relationship with each other. I can't fully explain that. It is a part of that relationship that would that manifests itself in the son obeying the will of the father now we we are we are not uh, uh, eternal beings and we didn't have a an eternal relationship with um, with 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 Jesus um, but we what we can say is that um, we don't win his love. We don't earn his love by our obedience. He loves us first. And it's in response to that love, that abiding relationship, that we obey we know this about Jesus love for us it's not conditioned upon what we do it's something that he chooses freely voluntarily to do without condition He loves us. In response, we love him, we obey him, we follow him, we abide in him. 
He has to graft us onto a vine, onto the vine. And then the abiding relationship begins. So if his love is not conditioned upon anything that we do, it's not going to be conditioned on anything that we don't do. Which is another way to say that once we have received Christ's love, once we have been grafted onto the vine, we will never be separated from that love. It will always be there. He's not going to undo something he has labored by the shedding of his blood to accomplish. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, Paul asks rhetorically, Who? What? Is there anything that will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, uh, peril? How about the sword? Verse 38 of Romans 8, Paul says, No, I'm, I'm convinced that neither, le- the, n- neither death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, any other created thing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. That's a wonderful blessing of abiding in Christ. We get to enjoy God's love. Turn with me over to the book of 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, find verse 6. The apostle writes there in his first epistle, the one who says he abides in him, abides in Christ, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. In other words, just as we are privileged as believers in Christ to abide in his love, we enjoy that love. So we are called to give that same love to the others around us. Oh, I am tempted to launch into a completely different sermon on that occasion, but I, I will resist the temptation. Back in our text, point number five, the blessing of enjoying Christ's joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Since Jesus talks about his joy, let's let's look at that for just a moment. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews writes, Fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That's a crazy thought. This torture instrument, the cross, crucifixion, uh, perfected by the Romans, 
was the most ghastly, inhumane, brutal, godless form of execution. A, 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 a sound, able-bodied, healthy male. Jesus was not any of the above. He was beaten to a bloody pulp prior to his execution. But, but, but one who had not been beaten or, or, or tortured as Jesus had, there was reports of, of people having their life sucked out of them, staying on a cross for three days. Three days of endless torture. I can't think of that. I can't begin to imagine it. And and yet the author of Hebrews said, for the joy set before him endured the cross. It doesn't mean that the the cross was um, uh, uh, that instrument of happiness for Jesus. No. His sense of joy was not bound up in his circumstances. His ground of joy was bound up in the Lord, in his Father, in the will that God had established for the Son to fulfill. And though the, though the cross was the most heinous thing imaginable as far as... Uh, uh, ways to to torture, to execute an an individual. Jesus was willing to endure that because of what was in front of him. It was the the, the process by which he was going to accomplish redemption. He was joyful in the fact that he was being used of the Father to redeem fallen men and women. Our source of joy is the same. It's not in circumstances. It's in our Savior. One page over, well, in my Bible, John chapter 17. Verse 13 reads, oh, this is a prayer that Jesus has with the Father. Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have joy made full in themselves. Jesus' joy came in the fulfillment of the Father's will, the plan of redemption. These, his men would experience the fullness of their salvation. And he wants them to experience even now the fullness of their joy. Their joy that is not dictated by circumstances. Their joy that is wrapped up in that one to whom they are attached. They are abiding in Christ. And in that relationship there is deep satisfying joy. Turn with me, if you would, over to uh, the book of Psalms. When, when David committed his atrocities with Bathsheba, her husband, the whole nation of Israel, 
he, he wrote two penitential psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Turn to the second, Psalm 51. In verse 12 of Psalm 51, David makes this statement. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He wrote this about a year, maybe not quite a year, after his affair and all of the mess that went with it. He had been languishing with this weight of guilt. He could do nothing about it. And finally, when the prophet Nathan came to him, confronted David, he finally confessed his sin. He realized some things. One of which, as is revealed here in verse 12, he had lost his joy. Abiding in the Lord, if we can use New Testament language for David, that that kind of undisturbed relationship with his Creator had been compromised. And he was in trouble. He knew he was in trouble. He had lost his joy. And so he prays, God, restore that to me. Look with me over at Psalm 16, another one of David's psalms, uh, probably written earlier in his life. Verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me. Does that connect with anything we've talked about this morning? Right? His, his devotion with his mind to the Lord, that's, that's what abiding is all about. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. He's going to be shaken. His circumstances are going to change. But that doesn't steal his joy. Verse 11, in your presence is fullness of joy. Yes, he let, he allowed his sin to come between him and God. And there was a disruption of the flow of spiritual nutrition between the vine and the branch. And there wasn't a lot of much fruit produced in that season of David's life. You can count on that. But once he repented, he came back to the Lord. And he remembered, in your presence is fullness of joy. God, I want that back. And it was only in that circumstance of him living in repentance did it come back? Number six. Another blessing of, of this abiding relationship with Christ, specifically the blessing of intimacy with Christ. 
intimacy with Christ. Look at our text, uh, verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Repeatedly, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Scriptures, we, we, we find um, a, a master-slave kind of relationship in a variety of different kinds of contexts. Jesus speaks of this kind of relationship repeatedly. And he says uh, uh, here in chapter 15, verse 20, um, he, uh, he, 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 um, is it verse 20? Yes, it is. And again in verse 13, uh, chapter 13, he, he talks about um, the, uh, the slave never being greater than the master. The master is one who gives a command, and the slave is responsible to obey that command. And we, we can see this kind of relationship in... We, we, I, I read from chapter 14, verse 15 earlier. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He repeatedly gives commands to his men, and he expects them to follow. The one we've been chasing after, talking about for weeks now in chapter 4. That command, abide in me. He expects them to obey. But here's the difference. Jesus doesn't give his men commands where he expects them to blindly obey. He has done something much more for them. He calls them friends. And he evidences an elevation in a relationship with him by the fact that he voluntarily offers his life. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life. For who? His friends. Jesus says, I'm calling you friends. I am elevating you to the level of my friend. And I'll show you that love. I'll show you our friendship. I am going to lay down my life on your behalf. And Jesus giving up his physical life gives us spiritual life. And secondly... Jesus says, I'm, I'm elevating you from, uh, from a, a slave relationship to a friendship relationship in that I am going to tell you secret things, confidential things, things that have been revealed to me by my Father. I am going to tell you 
That's something that a, a, a master would never say to a slave. Slave doesn't know, need to know why. He just needs to know how high to jump. Jesus says, verse 15, Slave doesn't know what the master's doing, but I've called you friends. All the things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I'm telling you these things because you're not just a slave now. You are my friend. I I need to highlight something here in this point that has... um, been so largely misunderstood and misapplied. Yes, Jesus calls his people friends. He elevates them to that status. But that relationship is one-directional. Meaning, I am his friend but he is not mine. Let me explain. Think of a nobleman and a slave that works uh, for the nobleman. If the nobleman loves, trusts, believes in, wants to have a relationship with the slave, he can elevate that slave, take him into his confidence, ask him, hmm, what do you think we ought to do in this particular circumstance? Oh, that's an amazing relationship for that slave. But let's turn the tables. What would happen if, if the slave would come to the nobleman and say, Hey, boss, buddy, I, uh, I, 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 like, uh, I like what I see in you. I, I, um, I, I kind of like uh, decisions you make. You have a lot of money. Um, I'd like to make you my friend. I don't think so. There are so many that have abused this idea of Jesus calling believers friends by referring to Jesus as their buddy. No, Jesus is not your friend. Jesus is your master. There is still this master-slave relationship. Paul says in, um, in the book of Romans, we are slaves of righteousness. Yeah, yeah. I am under obligation to my sovereign. Uh, He's not my friend. He is my Lord. I am here to do his bidding. Now, admittedly, it is unusual for a master in this particular case to, to elevate the slave, me, and say, I am going to put you in a particular privileged position. 
You're going to have access to me that nobody else does. I'm going to tell you things that my father has told me. Your normal slave does not receive that kind of treatment. But it is demeaning, degrading, otherwise wrong, to pull Christ down from his rightful enthronement and call him my buddy. To pal around with him as if he's my best friend. No. Jesus is not my best friend. He is my Savior. My Master. Seventh, quickly. This, this, this final blessing of abiding, namely, that of being hand-picked. That of being hand-picked. Look with me at verse 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you go and bear fruit. I have asked so many times of my, of, of my Lord, why, why did you choose me? Why did you place your spirit upon Rob Martini and call this one to be your child? I have no idea. Now, I know from reading Scripture that God always always has a reason for doing what he does. But in this particular case, I look at my own soul and I realize, well, it's not because of anything in me. My smarts, my education, my, my money or lack thereof, or, or it has nothing to do with me. Your salvation has nothing to do with you. It's not because you're you're, you, you were the most handsome or the prettiest or, or the smartest or because you figured it out? No. No, his calling, his electing of his people is without condition. He chose me. Now it is true that I also must choose Christ. My relationship with Christ in this abiding relationship is a choice, but it is a response to what he has already done. I, uh, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. Much fruit, a whole lot of fruit. Bunches of fruit. Bunches of good fruit. Premium fruit. Hmm. Yes, I have to love Christ. I am called to love Christ. Commanded to love Christ. But 
I love only because he loved me first. I choose him only because he chose me first. And he had his own reasons. Maybe it was simply because he thought Rob Martini would look good in his trophy cabinet of grace. To put on display, see this, see this wretched sinner? I saved that one. Wow. How great is God? That's what everybody else says. Hmm. All right. So this morning we've, we've, we've clipped from the, van, the vine a, a, an amazing cluster of grapes here. Those who genuinely abide in Christ enjoy the blessings of answered prayer, of glorifying the Father, of an assurance of their salvation, of experiencing Christ's love, the fullness of Christ's joy. They experience the intimacy with Christ of being hand-picked by God. Collectively and individually, these grapes that we've talked about this morning are big and sweet and succulent. Others might be tempted to call these premium. If you abide in Christ, you can call these mine. Let's pray. Our blessed God, we are humbled to know, to think, to realize that all those who have submitted themselves to Christ, been grafted onto the vine, these have a unique and privileged position with the creator of the cosmos. Father, allow us to see the blessings, the benefits of being connected with the vine. And may these benefits um, not only continue but increase. May, May we understand with greater depth and clarity what you have accomplished in us through Christ. It is for your glory and your purposes that we pray this. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, as we conclude? Katie? our hope in life and death Christ alone Christ alone what is our only confidence that our souls belong who holds our days within his hand 
What comes apart from His command And what will keep us to the end The love of Christ in which we stand Oh, sing hallelujah Our hope springs eternal Oh, sing hallelujah now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good, God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood Who holds our faith when fears arise Who stands above the stormy tribe Who sends the waves that bring us nigh Unto the shore, the rock of Christ Oh, sing hallelujah our hope springs eternal, oh sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess, Christ our hope in life and death. Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ He lives, Christ He lives, and what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with Him. There we will rise to meet the Lord, then sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy. When Christ is ours forevermore Oh, sing hallelujah Our hope springs eternal Oh, sing hallelujah Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death Oh, sing hallelujah Christ our hope in life and death. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Lord, for Katie. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. It's good to have you here. May the Lord bless you, strengthen you, remind you of whose you are and the privileges that are yours in Christ. Amen.